that's where I started out as a scholar. And I feel like I'm still there. I'm still telling stories about Native people and trying to write history from their points of view. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Crook Stratton, Secretary Treasurer of the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux Community, or the SMSC. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign focused on improving the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's K-12 schools. On today's episode, I'm joined by Brenda J. Child. She is the Northrup Professor of American Studies at the University of Minnesota, a historian and an author of many award-winning books about Native history. She is a member of the Red Lake Nation. We talk about her books and important elements of Native history that people should know about, including Native American boarding schools. We also discuss her latest endeavor, a new Center for Indigenous Arts at the University of Minnesota. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Brenda Child. Uh, she is an accomplished professor, historian, and author, uh, among many other things. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about myself and my career. I've taught at the University of Minnesota for quite a long time. And actually, I was just thinking how I've been there for 25 years. And now when my students haven't even been alive that long, right? I just had my met my first classes this week. So I've been at the university quite a long time and I teach in two really interesting departments, American Studies and American Indian Studies. By training, I am a historian and I've worked in the area of the history of Indian education, Great Lakes, Indian history. And I'm writing a new book these days about the history of American Indian marriage. It's my latest project. What what inspired you to look at in Indian marriages? See, whenever I say marriage, people kind of go, ah, that's a topic that I haven't thought about too much. Some of it was going through the records that we keep at, at Red Lake that actually date back to the 19th century. And we have a kind of, I think of it as an archive, but it's kind of an informal archive. And when I was going through these records, I was interested in kind of the topic of the surveillance of Indian people on the reservation. But I realized as I was going through these documents that there were an incredible number of records about the about marriage that kept popping up, arranged marriage, people telling their stories of women in particular, telling their stories of being married in the 19th century and how their families um, kind of took care of that, made the decisions for them. And then how in the early 20th century, young women began resisting that. And uh, we kind of moved away from arranged marriage as we progressed through the decades of the 20th century. So I talk about that. I talk about domestic violence on the reservation. I have a chapter about a really interesting story of an Ojibwe woman from White Earth who married a Lebanese man in the early 20th century went to live in Beirut and the tribe tried to disenroll her children because she was living off the reservation and married to a non-Indian. So that case went to the Supreme Court in 1930. 
But the last chapter is the one that kind of resonates for me today because of our location. I write about two women who became involved with one another in the 1940s who were prisoners at the Shakopee Women's Prison. One of them was Turtle Mountain Ojibwe. The other one was non-Indian. They broke out of prison together in the 1940s and posed as a married couple when they ran away from prison. And this is my first time using prison records. Wow, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait I'm for it to come out. It. I'm enjoying it. Oh, well, you've written several award-winning books. Um, what are some of the other themes that uh, you have out there? Well, my first book is very close to my heart. And it's kind of funny because it has never really, it remains a book. I'm very proud to say that people still read, even though it came out around the time I you know, got tenure at the University of Minnesota a couple decades ago, and that's boarding school seasons. And it was always my desire as a young scholar to write history from the perspective of Indian people, not from, you know, so I wanted to write about boarding school history because my grandmother had been a student at the Flandreau Indian School in the 20s. And she was the first person to tell me about boarding school. And I thought at the time I was, you know, a young scholar and in graduate school, Indian history, Indian people seem to have been somehow left out of the narrative of American history. And I, I was very ambitious and wanted to restore Native people's voices and interpretations and perspectives of the world. And at that time, we talked about writing a new Indian history. So that's where I started out as a scholar. And I feel like I'm still there. I'm still telling stories about Native people and trying to write history from their points of view. So you wrote your book on boarding schools uh, quite a while ago, kind of yeah. before boarding schools was, you know, a, a hot topic. Uh, not a good way to phrase it, but it kind of has become with um, the events out of Canada and, you know, Secretary Holland bringing um, that issue to the forefront in her work, too. Um, you know, is there anything different in the conversation today than what you wrote about um, decades ago? Yeah, I, I feel like early in my career when I wrote Boarding School Seasons and when we also worked on an exhibit at the Heard Museum uh, called Remembering Our Indian School Days that opened in 2000, that we were trying to call attention to this issue. And now the public is more aware, aware of it. And I feel like Indian people, maybe since that generation of people like my grandmother, who had been boarding school students during the assimilation years, I feel like um, we're maybe remembering the history a little bit differently. And I think for a lot of people, in fact, I wrote an article called The Boarding School as Metaphor to talk about how Indian people almost use boarding school as a metaphor for what I would call colonialism that is kind of symbolic of many different complicated things that were happening in the late 19th and early 20th century. But one thing I do always point out in talking about boarding school history, because, you know, I tried to write about sickness and students who died at school and many of the, you know, to get that whole history out there. But I also think that, and this is what I, you know, tell my students today, Think about why this whole system of segregated education, we don't use that word much to talk about Indian history, but segregation is part of our boarding school history. 
Why did that whole apparatus develop? And what was the government interested in in creating these institutions? And it was, first of all, at the end of the Indian Wars, right? Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's kind of part of that military history. But it was also the schools went hand in hand with the land policies of the late 19th and the early 20th century. So I always think it's important for us to never forget that the schools were really the policies that were, I don't know, the government thought of them as being the, we're going to give you, extend citizenship to Indians. You're going to enter the mainstream of American society. Well, on the other hand, they were dispossessing Indians of their land. The boarding school era, which I usually date from Carlisle up until FDR, when Indians began going to public schools in great numbers in the United States, So if we think of it as that half century, 90 million acres of land were lost to Indian people during that time. It's one of the largest dispossessions in the history of the world. And we can never not focus on that part of the story. And so if the government is talking about reparations or what can we do to remedy, that 90 million acres is still lost to us. And so I think we have to think about the land back movement in a very kind of concrete terms, because you could talk to anybody in the United States, any tribe, and they would always say, huh, there's there's this land in the Black Hills or up us at Red Lake. It's the eastern portion of the upper Red Lake that yeah. we lost during that time. There's a lot of talk of land back here in Minnesota, especially when you talk about all that land that was lost. Um, they were lost to institutions like the University of Minnesota in some cases, our land grant, um, you know, institutions and have yeah. made um, a lot of money off of yeah. those resources. And, you know, right now we talk about the um, School of Forestry up in Cloquet and giving that land back um, to the tribe up there and acknowledging kind of that history. And I guess that's where I'm going with this question is. There's so much more resource out there right now on, you know, acknowledging our history from a different perspective. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how it's changed since you started at the university to maybe the resources and awareness that is out around today? Well, one great thing about being at the University of Minnesota that has been the case for us that maybe makes our experience a little bit different there is that we were one of the first departments of American Indian Studies founded in the United States. So we've been around since 1969, along with the University of California at Berkeley's program. And so there is an awareness of Ojibwe and Dakota language and history that was always present, even you know before I arrived 25 years ago. I missed a lot of that early founding history. But I think that's something that's part of the conversation at Minnesota. And so we've always had this strength in a sense. And I was even an undergrad at Bemidji State in northern Minnesota. We had an Indian studies program by the time I went to college, you know, and I graduated years ago in 1981. So I'm grateful that American Indian studies has kind of been a part of my academic life. And I'm, you know, like I say, deeply grateful for that. At the same time, I think that there is a larger awareness in recent years, especially where the conversation has been in the last decade and very recent years about the moral um, act of 1862 
And I know I, I love teaching and I'm teaching it this semester. I'm teaching Indians of Minnesota. And I talk about the fact that our universities in Minnesota are on, are on native land and that 1862 is the year of the Dakota War, but it's also the year of the Morrill Act of 1862. So it's not just us at the University of Minnesota, but now universities across the country are like, what? We don't, you know, we were involved in slavery. We were involved in dispossessing Indians of their land. But I think that's an awareness that is perhaps new to some of my colleagues who haven't thought that deeply about the 19th century origins of many of the places where we all work and teach. Um, as a professor, you get the opportunity to um, kind of change the narrative and, and reshape some maybe misconceptions that people have about American Indians. Um, what are some of the, the biggest misconceptions you see in your classroom and um, kind of what's your response to that? I guess I would say in response to that, that there has been um, an evolution. I think, and student awareness of American Indian history. And I remember my early days of teaching, whether I was talking about the removals of, you know, Cherokee removals in the 19, whatever our topic was, that I would have students who come, would come up to me and sometimes angry because they never heard this before. They felt like they were learning the history of the United States for the first time. Not just Indian history, but the history of this country. I've had students from Mankato who said, I never heard of this mass execution in the town I grew up. This was not taught to us in school. Now I would say, having been around a few decades, I hear that less and less. Students come to the university, and even if there's a lot they don't know about the history of Minnesota or Indian history or the history of this country, they know there was a, a war in Minnesota. They know about the hanging in Mankato. And they seem to have a greater awareness, students these days, of the history of Indigenous people in this country than when I started teaching. You know, I know um, having uh, sat on panels for the tribal state relations training even, you know, adults who have been working for the state for a long time have that same kind of anger around, um, you know, why didn't we know this? Why yeah. weren't we taught this? But yes, I, I think it is getting much better. Yeah. Um, I'm going to yeah. change, switch gears on you a little sure. bit, because in addition to um, some of the to heavier topics like boarding schools, um, you've written a children's book too. Um, mm -hmm. Bow Wow Pow Wow is one that is in our library Good. at home. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why you wanted to write a, a children's book and what your inspiration yeah. was for that? Yeah. So my in inspiration for that was, um, I think some of the same things that inspire me as a scholar, I'm in the archives a lot and I am a historian who really loves kind of the methods of doing history. So there's that side of me. I want to restore Indian people to the narrative, but I also really like doing that kind of work. So when I was doing work in the um, history, in fact, when I was writing, I think the book called Holding Our World Together, which is about Ojibwe women and the Great Lakes, I kept running across a story of a dance that was performed by Indian people before 
important diplomatic events like um, negotiations at Fort Snelling or annuity payments on Madeline Island. And they, they had called this, the Indians came out and performed the begging dance. And that's what it was called for a long time. And I thought, well, the begging dance isn't right. But I knew it was about gifting and the redistribution of gifts, right? And I just kind of interpreted it that way. So one day I was reading an article um, by an uh, ethnomusicologist who was very big in the Great Lakes named Tom Venom. And he, he translated the lyrics from the song that was usually sang during these performances. And it was, we're like dogs, we're like dogs, we're like dogs. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I, I kind of didn't really find a way to talk about this extensively in my book I was writing, although I do mention the dance. And then I just kept, it kind of was in the back of my mind, uh, this idea of the connection between people and dogs. So I had this crazy idea and my son, I should say my adult son, Frankie, has muscular dystrophy and uses a wheelchair. And when he was in high school, he got a very special dog that came to our family that was one of those trained service dogs, Hunter, a black lab. This dog transformed our family life. You know, this dog could answer the phone and pick up your credit card off the floor. And he was just an amazing animal to live with. And I never really loved dogs until we had Hunter. So I started thinking about the begging dance. We are like dogs, this amazing service animal that lived with us. And somehow that translated into this book kind of about Red Lake. Um, because when my mom was going, growing up, she had a dog that um, I always knew its name. It was Itchy Boy. So I had the idea of writing a book about Itchy Boy and Windy Girl. And that's, that's what was behind Bow Wow Pow Wow. And just, you know, writing for a completely different audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, how do you, you know, go from kind of a more academic subject to kind of a more lighthearted, you know, children's book? Yeah. So I'm not really sure, but I, I think as, as Indian people, as everyone knows, like Vine Delore always said, we are the opposite of our stereotype that's we're stoic and serious all the time. I find Indian people very funny. and. When the only other job I've ever had in my life, besides working as a historian, was working with four-year-old children when I was in college. And I really liked talking to little kids, and I enjoyed my own children growing up. And I think that there's a particular sense of humor that kids have, that maybe we lose that as we grow up. But kids are so playful. They're so fun to converse with. They're willing to kind of stretch and use their imagination. So I knew that kids could appreciate the idea of a little girl who fell asleep at the powwow and had a dream that all the grand entry took place and it was all dogs dressed in their powwow attire. That's amazing. That's such a fun book. To learn more about the history of Native American boarding schools, Brenda recommends the writings of Dr. Charles Eastman. Eastman was a Dakota man born in Minnesota in 1858. He wrote several books about his experiences during the Dakota War and with boarding schools. They include From the Deep Woods to Civilization, Indian Boyhood, and The Soul of an Indian. You can find links in our episode description. Now, back to our episode. 
going back to teaching a little bit, um, yeah. you've had the opportunity to uh, teach many classrooms and you've also had um, people like our Lieutenant Governor, uh, Peggy Flanagan, in your class. Uh, she was actually one of our first guests on our podcast here. And she said you were the first Indigenous teacher that she had um, and that, you know, it was a huge impact to see somebody like her um, in the classroom. Can you maybe share with us, you know, did you have that same, you know, kind of feeling as you were growing up? Did you have a role model that um, maybe looked like you uh, in, in these areas that, you know, we don't often see our people? That's really a wonderful question, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it. But I guess I would say that the first people I met who were in the university were was the time I went to college at Bemidji State. And so we did have um, Indian instructors at Bemidji State University. And so this is maybe a funny way to answer this question. But my first year at Bemidji State, I went into a class on Ojibwe history. And we were all Ojibwe students, and the instructor was Kent Smith, who's actually an artist, but really smart guy. And he taught our course on Ojibwe history, and it was more like a seminar. And so I loved taking classes at Bemidji State. I loved Kent as a, as a teacher. But some of my mentors were the other Indian students. And there was one student in particular, because when you go to college, you know, I always tell my students, like with our first week of classes this week, that you're all smarter than I was when I started class, you know, as a as a student, that I didn't know that much about college and I didn't know that much about writing and that kind of thing. And that sort of but I did find my liberation and freedom in college and uh, have been there ever since. But one of my the people that I watched was my colleague, Robert Anderson, who was Boys Fort Ojibwe. And he was such a good student. And I would ask his advice about, oh, I'm thinking of taking this class. Have you had it? You know, he was an English and history major. And he was just so smart. And I admired him so much. And I would see him at the library at night. And so I started going to the library every night. And sometimes I would just chat with people and not get anything done. And then other times there wasn't anyone to talk to. So I'd do all my reading and all my writing. So I think some of my best mentors were the other Indian students at Bemidji State. Robert went on to get a law degree from the University of Minnesota, and he was the head lawyer in the Interior Department under Clinton. So it's a good thing I watched him instead of some of the other students, you know, because he ended up having a very distinguished career in law. It's amazing. I know I didn't have, you know, personally a lot of Native people in my K through 12 education. But when I went to college at the University of Arizona, um, my degree was political science and they had a decent Native American studies department. Oh, yeah. um, and I was able to swap out some of my international relations classes for tribal government and tribal law classes. Um, and that was probably one of the first times I, too, had Native instructors. And yeah. it was it was fun. There was a different connection. so. Um, I think it is good to see yourself represented in different places. All right, I'm going to switch gears again. Um, you have been working on a really amazing project, uh, the establishment of the George Morrison Center for Indigenous Arts. 
uh, that wow. has just opened. Yeah. Um, and I know there's some events coming up surrounding it. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah. So this is really exciting for me because a couple of years ago, I was thinking about what a vibrant arts community we live in, in our state. My husband is here with me today, Steve Primo, who's a painter and an artist from uh, the Mille Lacs community. And my daughter was in an Ojibwe language and art major when she started at the University of Minnesota. And she just graduated last spring. And her life was transformed as a freshman when she took her first ceramics class. And she was obsessed with ceramics and spent long nights at the studio. And I wasn't, I didn't see that in her when she was growing up. So that was very exciting. So I, I think I was in this atmosphere to kind of think more and more about arts in our community. So I proposed to a couple of my colleagues. Um, I have a wonderful colleague, Chris Baumler, who's the chair of the art department at Minnesota. And then a few years ago, I'd worked on an exhibit about Red Lake art and photography uh, with my colleague, Howard Aransky, who directs the Catherine Nash Gallery on campus, which is a 5,000 square feet gallery within the art department over on the West Bank. and. We had this wonderful exhibit um, in 2016, and we focused at that time on the work of Jerome Liebling, who had been the first uh, professor of photography at the University of Minnesota. And he had take the, taken these incredible portraits of people at Red Lake. But Red Lake people, they were virtually unknown in the community. They were in major art museum collections like MoMA in New York City, but no one had seen them here before. And so we decided we'd, we'd highlight Liebling's photographs of Red Lake Ojibwe, and then it just grew from there. And so we had this wonderful opening for this exhibit, and the exhibit was called Singing Our History, People and Places of the Red Lake Nation. And I'm very proud of this because we had an opening, and I said to my colleague, you know, for the reception, how many people show up? It was like the mid middle of January. How many people show up for these art openings? And he said, oh, you know. We'll get 250, 300 people to come in, too, on a Saturday night. I was like, great. So that's what I was expecting. We had so many people come to the opening of this show, including a lot of people from Red Lake. And I think a lot of people who don't normally go to art museums. We had over 700 people come to the opening of Singing Our History. And I was amazed by it. And it is, to this day, the largest opening they've ever had or reception at the Catherine Nash Gallery at the University of Minnesota. So that's my ambition for this next um, opening, that, that we get a lot of Indian people into the yeah. art museum. And so our new exhibit, and I've, I talked to my colleagues who were very enthusiastic about um, recognizing George Morrison, who was, our, was a professor of studio arts as well as American Indian studies from 1970 to 1983. Um, George Morrison had already had a brilliant career in New York City and in France and had taught at the Rhode Island School of Design, although he was Grand Portage Ojibwe and grew up speaking Ojibwe and uh, attended a boarding school and had that kind of history. But he had this really interesting career um, out in New York before he came back to Minnesota. In fact, the Met is organizing an exhibit about George Morrison's New York period, 
which I find really exciting because we tend to think of as, you know, our local guy, George Morrison, but he's a major figure in American abstract expressionism. And we needed to recognize that at the University of Minnesota. So this new Center for Indigenous Arts is named for George Morrison. And it's a more of a concept, right? Like we have research centers, which aren't so much buildings at the university, but they are places where we do research about a certain topic and where, especially through the Catherine Nash Gallery, we can organize exhibits. And so we're thinking very broadly about what we want this new center to be. We're opening with an exhibit called Dreaming Our Futures, Ojibwe and Ocheti Sokoan Artists and Knowledge Keepers. But we are planning an exhibit for a couple years in the future about Indigenous people and climate change. But we also think of it as a place not just for the visual arts, but for music, dance, poetry, literature, because we are also vibrant centers of all those things. It's amazing. I can't wait to see it. Um, Oftentimes people think about history and art as two separate things. And, you know, as somebody who's a historian, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why the establishment Mm -hmm. of this Mm -hmm. is a priority? And yeah, well, you know, I like I was mentioning, we started our classes this week and I've already taken uh, yesterday. I took 60 students into the exhibit. And often at the beginning of a class like Indians in Minnesota, I talk about Oscar Howe and how he was, you know, how how essential his paintings are to understanding the history of the Dakota War, Wounded Knee and the events of of history in the 19th century. And what was thrilling for me yesterday is that I got to bring students into the gallery to see Oscar Howe's paintings, which are on loan from the University of South Dakota. So sometimes I'm trying to show them, you know, a PowerPoint and you should know who this person is. And this is this exciting work. But yesterday they got to experience it. And so that was really exciting for me. I will say that Oscar Howe, I was remembering this recently when I was 18 years old, I went into a museum in Davenport, Iowa, and I don't know what the exhibit was, but I saw Oscar Howe's painting. I was 18 and I saw the origin of corn. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a work of fine art by a native artist in a museum. And I'd seen other Indian things in museums, but not a big canvas like this. And I never forgot it. And and I think that people like Oscar Howe have so much to offer. And we should be really, you know, I was telling my students yesterday, there was just a show last year about Oscar Howe in New York City. And so they kind of look again. <laughs> you know, at the paintings on the wall. But this is part of our history here in Minnesota. I mean, my understanding is that Oscar Howe, he grew up at Crow Creek, that he had extended family who were from the Shakopee area. You know, so this story of um, how he treats history is something that we should all understand, even though he's not doing it like me, writing in a book or lecturing to students, but he's talking about history and his art. It's amazing. Um, I know I got to preview the the book of um, some of the artwork that's in the exhibit. And uh, there's everything from traditional paintings to 
more modern right. art with um, skateboards and uh, some some really neat things. What are some of your favorite pieces that are in there? Well, I'm from Red Lake, so I have to say Patrick Desjardins. But it's always thrilling for me to see work by the mid-century artist, George Morrison, Patrick Desjardins, and Oscar Howe. And they are all well represented in this exhibit. At the same time, I, I was very happy that we have Avis Charlie in the exhibit, um, who's a Dakota artist who grew up in Los Angeles. And so I'm happy to see her work there. And then there are a couple of paintings that really struck me in an emotional way that I was kind of surprised about. And we'd asked Kathleen Wall if she wanted to participate in the exhibit. Kathleen is a ceramicist from the Jemez Pueblo in northern New Mexico. And I think of her as a ceramicist. We have some of her work before I ever met her. And she had the, has these two beautiful paintings of Ojibwe women. Kathleen's dad is from White Earth, and she has never been to Minnesota. And so she had these two beautiful paintings of Ojibwe women, and she has um, floral designs in both of these paintings, but they are without color. They're kind of, they're kind of blank. And she says, that's what I don't know about my identity and my family history. So I can't put the color in these paintings yet. Wow, that sounds amazing. Well, Dreaming Our Futures uh, is open to the public and I yeah. can't wait to see it myself. I hope um, all, everyone who's listening uh, gets an opportunity to see it too. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap up this conversation. Um, I could visit for forever, but um, you know, what? what's next on your plate? Well, I told my family that if I get through early February, the rest of 2024 is going to be great because we I'm so excited about these events. But we have our opening weekend, I guess I would call it related to dreaming our futures. And I decided that I wanted to have a panel about art and American Indian citizenship, because maybe some of us it's not perhaps big on our our um priorities right now, but it is the 100th anniversary of American Indian citizenship in the United States. So I wanted to reflect on that as we open the new George Morrison Center for Indigenous Arts at the university. And then on, on Saturday, um, February 3rd at four o'clock, we are going to have our really fun panel to honor Diane Wilson and Louise Erdrich for their contributions to art in Minnesota. And we're going to talk about our exhibit and have a fun gala reception. So it's hard for me to think past February 2nd and 3rd right now. Well, that's exciting. I know it's going to be a wonderful weekend for you. Um, before we go, uh, you have just uh, incredible knowledge of so many resources that are out there. Um, can you tell us or maybe share with us a resource or two um, for non-Native people that are looking to learn more about Native history? Um, what would you point them to? You know, it's funny because I have my readings list for the two classes that I'm teaching this semester, which are undergrad classes. One is broader about the U.S. The other course is focused on Minnesota. But I start with the same book. And since the first time I ever taught a course on Indian history when I was in my 20s, I start my classes usually with the same book, and that is Charles Eastman's From the Deep Woods to Civilization. 
I love teaching that book. I think students learn so much about the Dakota War, about the events of 1890. I think he's a great writer and thinker. And so, and the other fun thing about that book, I tell my students, they love this part. It's now, um, you know, because it's now a century old, it's free and available on Google Books. And they can just go on and Google the title and read the original Little Brown and Company edition from 1920. So I always recommend that if you're going to know something about Minnesota history, everyone should know who Charles Eastman is and read him because he's one of the most important figures in our, you know, late 20th, early 20th century history. Fantastic. We will find that link and make sure we add it to this episode. Brenda, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was a pleasure to have a conversation with you and best of luck at the new exhibit. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.